0: Hi, everybody. My name is Michael Domingue, and welcome to Strange Tales of Myth and Magic. In this podcast, we're going to explore mythology and magic and fairy tales and wives' tales and maybe some snakes' tales. We'll take a peek at some of the strange legends and stories throughout history and how they affected culture and how they affected me as an artist. So sit back and let me tell you a story. This week's episode, Mythological Plants. Magic, Murder, and Mayhem in the Botanical Kingdom. Now, I, I'm sure when you first hear the idea of mythological plants, uh, it might seem a little odd. It might, you know, it might seem like, oh, there can't be that many. Well, but the first thing, of course, you know, there are stories of the world tree and, you know, that's through, you know, Norse mythology. And of course, a lot of Native American mythologies have have stories that are like that. And then, of course, you know, if you're coming from the Judeo um, Christian side of things, there's, of course, the tree of, of knowledge, the tree of good and evil. Um, so so the more you think about it, the more common it actually is. There are plenty of stories where plants do strange, magical, mystical things. I, the probably the most obvious one, if you think back to your childhood, would be Jack and the Beanstalk, and we all know the story. You know, he's supposed to go buy something for his mom, and he spends it on some seemingly worthless beans, and they get thrown out, and all of a sudden, a giant beanstalk leads him on an adventure with giants and magic harps and geese that talk and craziness like that. Now, some of the stories I'm going to tell you um, are about plants that never existed. They're never, never, never on this planet. Now, other stories are actually going to be about plants that are real, but um, there's a twist or they have legends about them. So, for instance, one of the one of the plant stories that I came across, which is really kind of interesting, and it comes from Ireland and it's the, the legend of hungry grass. That's right, hungry grass, grass that's hungry. Now, in your mind, I'm sure you're thinking of like, oh, you don't want to go walking on the hungry grass because I'm sure you imagine like the grass reaching up and gobbling you up, blah, 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 and then you dis- disappear down beneath the soil. And you could not be further from the truth. This is absolutely not what hungry grass is about. It's also called famine grass is another term for this particular legend and lore. And, and the story is that if you go wandering, you know, through the hills or the countryside, um, you have to be careful of certain patches of grass, not because they'll gobble you up, but because if you step on them, you will be consumed with hunger. You'll have this insatiable hunger. You'll need to eat. Like, give me a Big Mac and give it to me right away. Now, some variations of this legend is that, you know, once you pass over it, um, you're fine. You know, your hunger goes away. And, and they do recommend if you're going through a long stretch of this hungry grass, you know, bring some snacks. You know, bring a little snack pack. But there's another legend that says, no, if you step on this grass you are going to be plagued with hunger till the day you die. There's nothing you can do to stop this hunger. You can go to the biggest Thanksgiving feast that you've ever had, and you're still going to walk away like you never ate anything. Now, the question is, what made this grass? Where does this grass come from to do such a devious thing where you can't get enough Egg McMuffins? Well, there's a few variations of this of this tale, and one is is it's evil fairies, evil, malicious fairies lurking around, trying to mess with us people. And you know, it might be you walked across their land. This is my land. You stay out, and now you're going to be hungry. Um, now there's another variation of this tale that basically says that um. When you are walking across a field and there are buried bodies that had never received a last rites um, and never been blessed, if you walk near that body um, on a patch of grass nearby, that's when you get the hungry grass curse. Bum, bum, bum. Now the bummer is, is that I've yet to come across anything that describes what hungry grass looks like. As far as I can tell, it looks like any old grass. So you could have this big open field and it'd be like little landmines waiting to give you hunger. So uh, another weird plant that I came across in, in my research for this podcast about a plant called Raskovnik. Now, Raskovnik is, uh, to describe it, it's hard to describe. Um, It's indescribable or difficult to recognize, let's put it that way. It it might look like a number of different things. So if you go out looking for it, chances are you're not going to recognize it. Now, in some cases, it it is said to look something like a four-leaf clover, but it seems to be not consistently that. The best way to find it is um, chatting with your underground, subterranean creatures, because it said that a number of those can actually recognize it. Now, what you might be asking is, well, who cares what this plant looks like? What's the big deal about it? Why, Why do I even want to find it to begin with? Well, the thing is, the cool thing is, is that this plant, if you have it, it will open any lock. And it will open anything that's closed. You got a boulder in the way of a cave that you want to get into. You whip this plant out. Boom, it's open. You got a little, little treasure chest you need to get open. You whip out the old Reskovnik, and boom, you're in. So you could imagine if you were a treasure hunter, why this would be something you would try and get. Now, in Bulgaria, they believe that it's actually tortoises that can... Can recognize this particular plant. So they've come up with clever ways to figure out where the plant is in the fields because it's actually said to be quite prevalent. It's actually said to be everywhere. you just don't know. So what they do is they find a tortoise that that has eggs you know it's sort of nesting with its eggs. And when the tortoise goes sauntering out doing tortoisey things away from away from the nest, They then put a fencing around it. They put some sort of barricade that that will um, make it unable for the tortoise to actually get in and go home. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of mean, actually. So what the tortoise does, because it needs to get in, needs to get back to its eggs. It goes looking for the magical herb, because what better way to open a gate than with Raskovnik? So the treasure hunters follow the little turtley around until they see where it's getting its stash of Raskovnik. And then they take it and then they, and then they go and open treasure chests or raid vaults or whatever they're going to do with it. I mean, it's pretty smart. I mean, if you're a jewel thief, you know, you get yourself a turtle, a pregnant turtle, and um, you're set. In the Indian Ocean, off the coast of Eastern Africa, there's a group of tropical, beautiful tropical islands called the Seychelles. And these islands um, have some magical little plants of their own. And and these are actual plants. This is actually really in existence. Um, And they're called the Coco de Mer. Now in the water, you might see what looks like little bottoms. Now, I'm I'm talking like human bottoms, like mostly sort of a usually described as sort of a woman's torso, but but her behind floating in the water. And and these bottoms are are good size. They're they're actually about anatomically correct. So they look like somebody is mooning you from the water. And these are essentially kind of something similar to a coconut. But, you know, other than the fact that that they look, you know, like a behind, you know, somebody's behind. Another strange thing about these booty nuts, shall we call them, is that um, they came from beneath the water. They, They rose from beneath the water. So what the natives believed was that there were these underwater forests, these underwater jungles that a specific tree grew that had these nuts and then they'd float to the surface. Now, another thing that they believed was that this tree, this underwater tree, was also the home of Garuda. Now, Garuda is a giant bird-like creature that is found in um, Hindu lore, and it's massive. It's uh, it, it's this massive thing that can eat tigers and it hunts elephants, and so it's no it's no teeny tiny bird. Now, it was said that if you saw a bunch of these coco de mer floating around, um, that might mean trouble. Because what was happening below the water were the trees were swaying, and that was going to create waves up above, which meant if you had a boat, you're going to be trapped in the water. You won't be able to get to shore. Now that is a problem if Garuda is out hunting. Now, beyond the mythology, um, these were very um, highly valued nuts in this area. In fact, if you were um, wandering around and you happened to see one floating and you gathered it up, you might find yourself in trouble because only the king of the Maldives could actually have these nuts. And if you got caught with one off with your head or whatever method they use to execute, I, I don't know. And, and even later, even in the 19th century, there was a scientist, Dr. Berthold Seaman, ironically enough, who stated that this particular nut could cure all poisons. I mean, not just a poison. He was convinced that the this nut was so mystical that you got bitten by a rattlesnake or a cobra or drank some arsenic that this nut would cure you. Well, of course, that's wrong. Now, the other thing that's wrong is that this nut does not actually come from underwater forests. It actually comes from trees above the land. And they fall off, and it might float for a moment or two, but then they sink. And after a little bit of time, the nut returns to the surface, thus making it seem like they're coming from beneath the waves. Now a lot of these legends actually, you know, have some romance involved in them. So, um for instance, let's let's start off with the legend of the 100 knot bamboo tree. And this story is actually from Vietnam and it's about a young worker named Koa. And Koa is, you know, works the fields and he has this employer and the employer has this beautiful daughter. Now, I don't actually know her name in the story. I So we'll just call her you know, Sally, which is probably the most un-Vietnamese name I, I could think of. But anyway, we'll, we'll just say it's Sally. So Koa decides to ask his boss, um, we'll call him Mr. Big, um, ask Mr. Big if, you know, he can marry his daughter. I, I want to marry your daughter. Uh, I'll be a good husband. And Mr. Big's like, you know, um, yeah, all right, I'll tell you. If, if you get me the hundred not- Bamboo. It's a it's a mythical bamboo that has a hundred little seams. If you can bring that to me, you can marry my daughter. Um, Koa, being a little bit uh, naive, I suppose, goes off on his journey looking for the hundred knot bamboo. And of course, he doesn't find it because it doesn't exist. It it, it does not exist, and so he's a oh man, he's a whanny baby. He's crying. I don't know who it is. Well, the Buddha, that's right, the Buddha actually appears, and said, "Hey, what's going down? What's shaking? What's the matter?" He's like, "I'm looking for this this hundred dot thing, and you uh, can't find it." And you know, he's crying, and Buddha's like, "Dude, don't cry." Um give me a hundred little stems of bamboo. Just give me a hundred of them. Bring them over here. Koa does that. And then Buddha's like, okay, line them up in a row, you know, end on end, 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 you know? So a hundred, one long thing. Koa does that. And then the Buddha says, okay, now what you need to say is stick together, stick together. And Koa does, that. he's like, stick together, stick together. And sure enough, all the bamboo attaches to itself. And he's got one big honkin' hundred knot bamboo. And Buddha's like, there you go, dude, go get the girl. And, uh, you know, Koa's like, all right, awesome. And he starts to carry the bamboo and the thing is hard to carry. You know, it's this huge, long thing. It's, it's awkward. It's difficult. And you know, how do you carry this thing? And he goes back, I can't carry it, I'm never going to get the girl, and Buddha's being chill. Like, dude, just set it on the ground again, and say, unstick, unstick. Sure enough, Koa does that. Unstick, unstick. They all come apart again. So Koa gathers up the bamboo and heads home as fast as he possibly can. Now, meanwhile, Koa's employer, Mr. Big, has been busy trying to marry off Sally to the local chieftain's son. Now, when Koa finally gets back to his village, the the wedding is just about to start. And he comes running up to Mr. Big and saying, hey, Mr. Big, I've got your bamboo. And he lays out in a row all the little stalks. And Mr. Big's like, I, you know, I, I didn't I, I didn't want a hundred little stalks of bamboo. I wanted one long stalk, a hundred knots. You, I'm sorry, you can't marry Sally because you didn't do what I asked. So sorry, so sorry. Well, Koa then immediately says, stick together, stick together. And burp, there they are. He's got the hundred knot bamboo. But that's not all. Mr. Big is also attached to the hundred-knot bamboo. And then the chieftain comes running over to, to help Mr. Big. And he, he reaches over to, to, to help pull him off the bamboo. And just as he does that, Koa says, stick together, stick together. And sure enough, the chieftains also stuck in the big long line well, the the families of the chieftain and the families of of Mr. Big come running over. Oh, please release them. Please release them. And Koa's like, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll release them, but you've got to make some promises here. First off, I get to marry Sally. And second off, I don't want any sort of vengeance. I don't want any sneaky stuff. So you promise that? I'll let them go. They agree, and... Unstick, gunstick, and everybody's released. And Koa and Sally get married on that very day. So now that that fable is is not necessarily the, the plant that's magic. It's just a plant that happens to be around when magical words are are spoken. So I don't know if that technically counts in the mythological um, plant thing. But I slid it in there anyway. So there is one, though, um, a story that comes from the Carpathian Mountains. So actually the area where the Dracula legends come from. And that is um, about um, something called the fern flower, um, also known as the the Chevrona ruta. Now, this flower is actually a real flower. It's related to the rhododendrons. Um, but the legend is that this flower only blooms once a year, only blooms on the summer solstice. And in some versions, it's actually, it's normally a yellow flower, but on that one day, um, it turns red, turns into a bright red coloring. Now, this is a rare flower, you know, it's on sort of the mountaintop. So it's a very, very rare flower. So it's often hard to get to. Now, It's special because as the mythology goes, if you happen to catch it in bloom, if you happen to gather one up at that time, you will be surrounded by good luck. That could be, you know, good health. It could be. Good fortune, it could be good love, it could be a whole number of different things. Um, in some versions of the tale, you need to be a little bit cautious though, because the flowers are often hovered around by evil spirits. so you might be uh, you might get some some goodies out of the deal, but there might be some catches to it. You might have evil spirits to contend with. Some of the stories actually have this flower giving people the ability to communicate with animals. You could be Dr. Doolittle if you found this flower, if you happen to catch it in bloom. There's a romantic tale associated with the fern flower. And this is one in which they're two young, two young lovers. And then one day, um, the boy gets captured and he's sold into slavery to the Ottoman Turks. He's then put on one of the barges, and so he's basically a rower, and he's shackled onto this boat, rowing and rowing and rowing, along with a number of other prisoners. After some time, though, you know, rowing and all this hard work... Um, people forget their past lives. They forget who they were. They forget their family. They forget their loved ones. And they forget why they would want to leave the boat. And so um, often they're unshackled after a certain amount of time because they have no place to go, no place they remember. Well, meanwhile... Um, his, his gal, his girlfriend, um, is, is still weeping over his, over his disappearance. And so she goes up to one of these fields on the Carpathian Mountains on the solstice, and she finds herself a Chevrona Ruta. She grabs the blossom and she waits until the cranes head south for the winter. And when they do, she finds one crane and gives it the bloom and says, take this to my boyfriend. The crane crosses many miles and finds the ship and flies up to the young boy, dropping the flower into his hand. Well, suddenly he remembers everything. He remembers who he is. He remembers his girlfriend. He remembers that he does not belong on this barge. In fact, all the prisoners regain their memories. So, banding together, they rise up, kill the guards, and take over the ship. And then, after years of captivity, they head home. The flower, a symbol of their freedom, is placed prominently on their masthead. Now, if we move to pop culture um contemporary culture movies and things like that there's plenty of sort of fictitious plants th- to be had now you know i i think one of the early early ones for me was Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So uh, I remember when the 1970s one came out, you know, and it had these big pods and, you know, you fell asleep next to it and then um, you would sort of get sucked dry and then a new version of you would appear in the pod. But it wasn't you. And, And then, of course, there is the very popular... Little Shop of Horrors with Audrey Audrey which is basically a giant it's an alien but a a giant plant that gobbles up people. As it turns out there are some carnivorous plants in mythology and legend. Um the first one I'm going to mention is the Madagascar tree. Now this was said to be a tree um that devoured humans and it was used for human sacrifice. It was basically like a Venus flytrap, except that it had these long tentacles that sort of could hold people into it. Now, this was actually written about in an article Um, by a guy named Carl Leachy. And in the 27th of October in 1874, in the South Australian Register, he wrote, The atrocious cannibal tree that had been so inert and dead came to sudden savage life. The slender, delicate palpi with the fury of starved serpents quivered a moment over her head, then as if instinct with demonic intelligence fastened upon her in sudden coils round and round her neck and arms. Then, while her awful screams and yet more awful laughter rose wildly to be instantly strangled down again into a gurgling moan. The tendrils, one after another, like a great green serpent with brutal energy and infernal rapidity, rose Retracted themselves and wrapped her about in fold after fold. Well, that went in the newspaper. But the thing was, that never happened. Um, there are no legends of the Madagascar tree. It, it was totally made up by this journalist. Um, it wasn't something that the the locals were talking about. There's not a tree down there that even looks like that. Um, there's no cannibalistic trees in Madagascar. Um, for some reason, Carl, the German explorer, journalist, um, just made the story up. Now, as to why this German explorer decided to make up this tale, um, I never came across any information relating to that. I never came across any information to say this is why he did it. I I would sort of suspect that he was given some money to tell a wild tale that probably would sell some newspapers. So although the Madagascar tree was not associated with any known mythology, um, that doesn't mean there are not vampire plants In fact, there are vampire pumpkins that roam around the Balkan regions. That's right, vampire pumpkins, but not just vampire pumpkins. Vampire pumpkins and vampire watermelons. Now, I know this sounds strange, but these are legitimate legends. Now, of course, this is coming from an area that is um, well versed in vampire lore. So if you can't have vampires, why couldn't you have vampire Vegetables. That's perfectly legitimate. And it, when I heard about this, it reminded me very much of the film Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, which has often been called the worst movie ever made. If it's not the worst movie ever made, well, it's pretty darn close. The idea is that there are these possessed tomatoes that go on a rampage. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Now, perhaps they got the idea for this film from the vampire pumpkins and the vampire watermelons. But but basically, how you get a vampire pumpkin and a vampire watermelon um, are melons and pumpkins that have been left on the vine during a full moon. So, you know, after, you know, if there's a full moon, you make sure you want to pick those watermelons, pick those pumpkins. Now, the way you can tell if it's turned vampiric is that you'll see little red speckles. And those red speckles are blood. So, what happens if you get vampire pumpkins? Well, you get mayhem around the farm, because what happens is you get these sort of moving pumpkins or melons that sort of will start huddling together. They form little circles next to each other, and you'll hear them making sounds going brrrl, brrrl, brrrl. That's the sound they're said to make when they get together. Now, are they a danger? Well, a part of that depends on who's telling the legend. Now, I've heard some versions of the story that say, yes, they are a problem. Because if you eat a vampiric squash, um, you have the risk of turning into a vampire. Th- that's rarer. Um, that, that's, one of those, that's one of those legends that is not as common. Um, more common is that these are just bad luck you don't want them around they're uh you know they 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 will create a a, a shadow over your farm now probably even more common is that these things are just a nuisance. They don't really do much. They don't do any harm. They're just a nuisance. They might scare the sheep, they might scare the cows, they might break down little chicken coops and things like that. But they're not really any danger. But nonetheless, you probably don't want them around because they're, you know, they're a pest. So how do you get rid of a vampire pumpkin? Well. What you do is you get a big pot of boiling water and you plunk the pumpkin or the melon into the pot. And then you take a broom and you basically have to keep up submerged. So below the boiling water. And you do that long enough and no more vampire pumpkin. And as far as I understand, very edible at that point, too. I I have to admit that I was a little bit disappointed um, learning more about vampire pumpkins and finding out that they didn't um, creep around draining, draining the blood of people. And, you know, I was hoping that, you know, they'd be lurking over people as they slept and they'd wake up and there was a pumpkin maybe carved like a jack-o'-lantern. But no, not as exciting as all that. Well, that's but a smattering of some of the botanical, magical, mystical plants that, are, that we find in mythology and legend and, and that sort of stuff. Um, I thought we'd save some other tales for a future date, because we, we haven't even addressed magic apples, for instance. And that could probably be a podcast on its own. So for now, let me just say, beware of the pumpkin you pick, for it may be your last That's it for this week's episode, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to pop it again. There's going to be new tales of myth and magic popping up in the future. So uh, tell your friends. That's always helpful. And um, if you're interested, stop by my website, www.michaeldebing.com, and you can see some of the artwork that I create that might relate to what we're talking about. And if you want to delve a little further into the topic, I'll have blog posts that relate to each of these podcasts. So until we meet again... I'll be mything you.